0: Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and our guest today is Catherine A. Sherbrooke, and she is the author of Fill the Sky, which was a finalist for the May Sarton Award for Contemporary Fiction and the Forward Indies Book of the Year Awards, and I think it also won an award from in Massachusetts, I believe?
1: No, it was an Indie Press Book
0: of the Year, Yes. yes. Her most recent novel, Leaving Coy's Hill, received the Fiction Honors from the Massachusetts Book Awards. And she is chair of the Grub Street Creative Writing Center in Boston and lives south of the city with her family. The book we're talking about today is The Hidden Life of Astor Kelly. Welcome to Writers' Voices, Catherine.
1: Thanks so much for having
0: me. It's great to be here. So I know that The the Hidden Life of Astra Kelly is based on some family history, and I'm curious, are all your books have some family history involved in them, or is this a a departure for you?
1: Um, So this Astra Kelly is inspired by some family history. It's not really an an attempt to recreate any of it, but it is inspired by my mother. Um, The other books are are not you know, directly inspired at all by family history. In fact, leaving Coys Hill is deep historical fiction based on a real historical character. Um but that said, I would say there's a lot of every author in every book, I think. So any author who tries to
0: tell you otherwise
1: <laughs> is, <laughs> is yes. not telling the whole truth. <laughs> so how
0: how much is Astor Kelly like your mother?
1: So Astor Kelly um, in this book is a runway model in Hollywood in the late 40s. And my mother was a runway model in Hollywood in the late 40s. So that that part, um, it, that's clearly where a lot of the inspiration comes from. Astor Kelly arrives in Los Angeles actually dreaming of becoming a fashion designer. And that was not my mother's dream, but my mother did. My mother was very creative, and she made all her own clothes for many years, um, and she had many other creative gifts. Um, other than that, I would say, you know, Aster Kelly is very much her own character. She's not uh, intended to, to, you know, be my mother, but my mother left behind several kind of interesting breadcrumbs of her time in Hollywood. She, she refused to talk about that time directly. She used to say it was a time she preferred had never happened. She liked to pretend, which was both very intriguing and a little scary to me, but she did leave some breadcrumbs and tidbits behind. Um, And so I was able to, to weave some of those into the book. She was also a runway model before and after her time in LA in New York. And and so she did tell me some about what that was like to be a couturier model, walk the runway for customers who were looking to buy clothes, her interactions with the designers, you know, what, what that life was like. So I, you know, I was able to imbue the, you know, put those details into the book to make it as authentic as possible.
0: So, as a runway model, it wasn't like the big fashion shows that we think of now. It was actually in a boutique and with a designer modeling specific items for a specific customer. Or she, did she do she both?
1: Did, she did a little bit of both. Her Her primary jobs were as a Couturier model. So places like Bendel's in New York. She worked at Adrian's um, out in in Hollywood. And so that was the, you know, small sort of in the back room for the customers, but she did later in her career model for some designers who did resort wear for, as an example, when that was kind of new to the market and they would put on some really big fashion shows. So Ah. I've heard stories of, you know, these big stages and all the models would come out and they'd end up coming up and forming a pyramid. And my dad would tell me about falling in love with her because she was the top of the pyramid. (laughs) So your dad Um,
0: attended one of these fashion shows? uh,
1: After my mother came back from Hollywood. So this was now mid, mid fifties. My mother came back from Hollywood, a divorcee with a young daughter, which was pretty scandalous at the time. Um, And then met my father and they, um, so yes, he, he attended some of those later shows. So,
0: that part of the hidden life of Astor Kelly is true to life to your mother, too, the divorcee with the young daughter.
1: Yes. yes. And my, um, the sort of second part of the book, actually, which is the, the 1970s timeline, I wanted to reimagine what might have become of my mother and my sister had my mother not remarried and had a whole second family, my, you know, she and my father had four more children of which I'm the youngest. And my mother, again, who I said, who was this incredibly creative person, I think she could have had many careers in the creative world, became a full-time homemaker. And so part of the creative launch pad for me was what might, what and who might she have become had she not remarried? Um, And also for my sister, who was quite a bit older than the rest of us and always felt like a little bit of an appendage to our family, um, it, you know, what, what life might have been like for her had she and my mom just remained a duo, kind of focused on each other and supporting each other. And so that was my creative launchpad for the, for the second part of the book.
0: Now, you mentioned that your mother left some breadcrumbs, so I'm guessing she's not with us anymore? Is no longer with us. That is correct. And Uh, now, but your sister is? Sadly, we lost her to cancer a couple of years ago. Um, So, so neither of them Did she get to read this
1: manuscript?
0: No, No. she didn't,
1: sadly. Yeah.
0: So, it's a tribute to her as well.
1: it, It is also a tribute to her, yes. But I, you know, before... Um, losing my sister, we we were able to have a lot of conversation about that, about the impact that all of that had on her life. Um, And because of a family memoir that I wrote that was actually my first book before I started writing fiction, I did delve a little bit more deeply into trying to figure out a little bit more about my mother's time in Hollywood, including who my sister's biological father was. Um, with my sister's permission, I did that. She so had she a name. she didn't know? She had a name. She had a and name. And th- that was really it. But this was, she was born in 1950. So this was, you know, as she was growing up and she was really curious and my mother really wouldn't talk about it, that, you know, there was no Internet. And we lived in New Jersey, so it wasn't even like she could go to L.A. town offices somehow and try and figure out more about who her father was. So when I began writing this memoir, which was back in... 2001 with her permission I went digging and um and that that helped me understand a lot about how my mother was pretty deeply entwined in very high echelons of Hollywood so when I say breadcrumbs she would mention things like uh for example the first one I remember was I I used to love to watch my mother get dressed to go out at night and And I saw in her jewelry box a sapphire ring I had never seen before. And my mother didn't have a lot of sparkly jewelry. So it stood out to me and I asked her what it was. And she said offhand, oh, that was given to me by my roommate in L.A. after a heated breakup with Cary Grant. Cary Grant, mom? You know, like, wow, really? (laughs) And then she would snap out of it and refuse to say more. Whoa. So, you know, and then another time when... She was helping me find a a costume for Hollywood parade when I was in high school and I wanted to be a cowgirl. Um, Actually I was dressing up to be the flex girl. If you remember flex commercials, that shampoo anyway, she said, right? Flex shampoo. And she said, Oh, I have the perfect thing. And she went digging in some attic closet and came out with this just incredible cowgirl outfit. And I put it on and she said, Oh, my great friends, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans would have loved that look on you. Right. And Roy Rogers, I have to admit at the time, Roy Rogers was just a restaurant chain to me, but then I I came to understand that he was also one of the biggest stars in Hollywood at that time. Um, he, He was in over 40 movies. So, so, you know, these little things would come out and yet she, she wouldn't say more. So, in my digging into my, you know, sister's father's past, it turns out that he was the lead singer of Roy Rogers' backup band. So he was in over, you know, 15 movies with Roy Rogers. And then when Roy Rogers had a weekly radio show, his band would sing on that radio show every week. So, you know, my mother really was that, that explained a lot about. <laughs> the kinds of circles that she was operating in when she was out in, in Hollywood.
0: It's weird that she wouldn't talk about it, but then would say those things (laughs) because they're obviously going to pique your curiosity.
1: Right. And it was honestly like, so my mother was the, the most lovely, warm, emotionally available person that, like you know in my in my world and maybe you know one of the ones most emotionally available I'd ever met and so the fact that she would shut down the conversations really stood out and I think the fact that she would she would lapse into them was not to tease me but almost that you know we'd be having a conversation and so she would just start to mention it like you might in a conversation and then she would sort of remember oh I don't want to go into this. I don't want to be asked questions. I don't want to talk about this time in my life, which, you know, created a lot of fear for me and, and questions. What might've happened that letter to be so burdened by secrets. So again, the book is not an attempt to figure out what exactly happened, but it was my creative launch pad to invent a story of how, you know, A woman might come back home to New Jersey with a child and be so burdened by secrets. And it was really important to me to give Astor Kelly agency in those things that created secrets. So as you know, having read it, um, the secrets really come from choices that Astor makes and choices that she believes in the moment are the right choices to make. Right. And in some ways they are. Yes. But then they have unintended consequences which lead to this lifetime of secrets that she she feels she needs to keep. Well, we have to remember it's hard it's
0: hard to realize now, but just like you said being a divorcee with a young child was was scandalous enough at the yes. time and Sure. Whatever the circumstances were, um, I mean, you must. Did you ever know who she was married to? You must have been able to find mar- a marriage
1: license or something. Yes that, yes, that person I mentioned, who was the yes, okay. who was the backup, the lead singer in the in Roy Rogers' backup. That's band. who that's she, who was, she married was married to. to. Yeah, and that was my sister's father. And yep. was your
0: did your sister ever contact him? Was he still living, or
1: he was also deceased? But ah. through that research, I did um, end up finding his second wife, who knew all about my mother and Barbara, and they did end up getting in contact. Ah. And um, so, so that was sort of an interesting side part of the story. We
0: had a, a um, family secret come up this past winter um, through Ancestry. dot com. I found a oh. first cousin. That I did not know. And he had been looking for his family for 45 years.
1: Wow. That's amazing. It was amazing. This is happening so frequently. And
0: I was able to put him in touch with his father. And um, I just heard yesterday um, from my mother that, that this... You know that the father was so happy to have been found. Oh, he that's was wonderful! So happy, and he wants to call me and thank me for the work that I did in putting them together. And and I'm just yeah. I'm just thrilled by that. On that's the, so neat. On the other hand, you know, he was then also, you know, this this um, man who had been searching for his family was able to find his mother as well. Not wow. a relative of mine, but um, and she was she had a a different reaction. And I think it was much Mm -hmm. harder for the girl, the woman, the mother in those situations. um, Right,
1: right. Well, it's interesting, right? When things you you've been living in one way, and then things get, you know, the whole story changes at some level when you find out truths, which is, you know, as you know, a part of Part of the second part of the story is just these secrets start to come out and it's really difficult. Yeah. The other thing I should mention is that, um, you know, my mother's particular path wasn't the only inspiration for the story, you know, back to that ring that my mother's roommate gave her <laughs> after.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> see, I'm wearing
1: my copy. So, what? What uh,
0: people who can't see this because this is just going to be audio. Um, the the uh, advance reader copies were sent out with a beautiful emerald-like ring. Um, yes, that is yeah. featured in the story.
1: Yep, that's right. And you know the inspiration for for this. Um, so, my mother. In um, when she mentioned that this ring she had was given to her by her roommate in L.A. after this breakup with Cary Grant, I was able to do some research into that, and I found a newspaper article that mentions Betty Hensel, a woman named Betty Hensel, who was a, always listed as a well-known love interest of Cary Grant, and there was a big hubbub because he gave her a ring that looked very much like an engagement ring. And there's an article, though, that says very clearly, Cary Grant and I are just friends even though I wear his ring. And Betty Hensel was my mother's roommate. And so I, I putting two and two together, assume that that was the ring she gave to my mother in a fit of rage. And so that really got me thinking about the fact that, you know, there's a lot of question about Gary Cary Grant. He was married five times. There's been a lot of suggestion and even, you know, direct quotes from past lovers that, in fact, those marriages were a cover um, for him likely being gay. You know, I don't know that for a fact, but that is a great suspicion um, because that was just that was a very common practice in Hollywood at the time that these contract actors um, the studios believed, and probably most of our country, you know, felt right. that were to come out that someone like Cary Grant was gay, well then, full stop. You know, he is no longer no more career. going to be yeah. no more yeah. career, and people are no longer to go see his movies. So that got me thinking a lot about that ring, and maybe that that you know Betty Hensel. Mm, misunderstood what he was looking for in a relationship and that led me down a whole line of creative thinking which which factors in into this book into the hidden life of astor kelly
0: and we don't want to give give anything away so we won't go too much further into that but um you're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Catherine Sherbrooke, author of The Hidden Life of Astor Kelly. Now, Catherine, I understand that your work with Grub Street is very important to you.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, so Grub Street is the nation's largest creative writing center, and it is headquartered in Boston. And when I first Start, so I had a, a career in business before I pursued my lifelong dream, which was writing fiction, um, but didn't have a lot of practice or an education in creative writing. And so I began taking classes at Grub Street, which have classes in every genre you can imagine at every level from beginner to advanced writer and, and also classes actually that help writers understand the market and how to find an agent and the, the whole nine yards And I began uh, my first novel, actually, while taking a class called Novel in Progress and literally began writing my novel with a group of 10 other novelists who were also starting their first novels. And we would, you know, write and give each other feedback. And we had a wonderful teacher who helped us. And we all re-signed up for that class three or four times so we could continue working together. So Grub Street really became my creative lifeline of figuring out how to move from the business world into a more creative life and i very quickly joined the board there because i felt that i could keep my you know the the sort of business muscle of my brain could really help them with growth and strategy and it was a good way to give back to them while they helped me and so it was really has been a beautifully symbiotic Um, relationship for you know since about 2011 or so.
0: Now I know they do in-person classes do they do remote classes as well?
1: They do now so used to be all in person and of course with COVID we transitioned to putting everything on Zoom and now we have both because Zoom isn't going to go away and um and we now have students from really all over the globe so anyone can go to grubstreet.org and check out the classes they really are you know it's a wonderful selection of classes
0: now have you taught any classes
1: um i have we also have an annual conference i should say that's called the muse and the marketplace and so i have done sessions craft sessions and also market sessions on those, I have yet to teach a full class. I really I really want to, but need to need to, to carve out the time in my schedule um, to do that, because I, I would like to do that at some point.
0: Now, that first novel that you wrote in that class, were you able to get it published?
1: That was Fill the Sky. Mm-hmm. That was my first novel.
0: And how did you find your publisher?
1: So the first trick is to find an agent, and that's a whole process um in and of itself lots of query letters and and so forth again something i learned how to do through grub street and the grub street community so i signed with an agent in in new york um, and then it's the agent's job to sell the manuscript
0: so how long did it take you to find an agent was that a long drawn out process or were you one of the lucky ones who Get an agent really quickly.
1: It was I was not one of the lucky ones. You know, you do hear these stories of people sending out, you know, queries, and within a week, an agent has stayed up all night to read the book, and they're signed, and away they go. I did not have that experience. I think I sent out something like eighty or ninety queries, um, which is much more common than than not. I think it's a very, it's a very subjective process and you have to find just the right agent at just the right moment who happens to fall in love with what you have to offer. Um, and the, and the book sales process, I also found to be very similar for me. It, you know, it's, it's, uh, it took a while for my first two novels to sell.
0: At least now you can send out queries to multiple agents, as many as you want at a time without having to wait for an answer back from each one. Does that make the process go faster?
1: Yes. Although I wouldn't say faster. In fact, the industry has slowed down incredibly. I think because it's so, you know, easy and quick to submit, agents are, you know, overwhelmed. They're so inundated. And sadly now it's become more the norm to just not even hear back at all. So you get silence. Um, and even some agents who ask for full manuscripts, which seems impossible, you know, they read the first few pages, they ask for a full manuscript, and then disappear into the ether. Um, at least this is what I'm hearing from from friends who are you know at the moment trying to find agents. and so it's it's a really tough business. Now,
0: years ago, like in the last century, there was a rule against simultaneous queries. You were only supposed to send one at a time, but now multiple submissions are okay, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Multiple queries. There are some, I would say it's exclusive comes up when an agent sees your query or reads a few pages and says, I would really like to read your whole manuscript and consider it. Can you give me an exclusive? And then it's up to the author to say, okay, great. You know, how long do you need? Is that six weeks? And then you stop querying. Um, but, I, but in my experience, that's, that's, that's not the norm.
0: And that's partly why agents are overwhelmed because everyone's sending out to everyone that might possibly be a fit at the same time. Was there ever a point in that process where you considered self-publishing?
1: So my family memoir actually the first book that I wrote I did self-publish. At the time I saw it just purely as a personal project, something that I wanted to I wanted to get the whole story down. This is about my parents love story which was very rocky because my mother was a divorcee and my father's family forbid him from marrying her. He was first generation from Italian immigrants, you know, first generation Italian American. And um, so so I, I wanted to get that story down and saw it as a personal project. So I didn't even try to shop that to the market. I self-published it. So that was a really good experience for me to learn what that was like. And then when I turned to fiction, I um, very much wanted to see, you know, give myself a chance to break into traditional publishing. But, you know, there are authors that go back and forth and even go back and forth with different books and in different parts of their career. So I think that's always a possibility, you know, with technology, things are changing so very much. And I think it also has a lot to do with genre. Um, You know, I think there are a lot of mystery writers or thriller writers that you can self publish and and if you know what you're doing in targeting an audience sell a lot of books by finding those voracious readers directly online so and make more money for sure whereas more more literary fiction or you know different categories are tend to lend themselves to being discovered in a bookstore kind of kind of atmosphere although i think some of us are that was a dream for me to be on a bookstore shelf.
0: And you're with Pegasus Books, right? And Pegasus is a fairly large publisher, or
1: mid-size. Um, Pegasus Books, yes. They're they're independent, but they're distributed by Simon and Schuster. So it's kind of the best of both worlds in that they are um, they're big enough that they're putting out books all the time, small enough that they're able to really pay attention to their authors and each book and yet they have access to the sales force and the distribution of Simon & Schuster. So it's really a wonderful imprint.
0: Well, one of the advantages or disadvantages, depending on the author, of working with a mainstream publisher is you don't have to be thinking about book layout and cover design and distribution and all of those things. You just need to write and edit and listen to your editor, and then talk to people like me to get the word out about your book.
1: Yes, I don't. Yes, it's very true that um, you know I don't have to worry about the, the, the design and the production of the book itself. And Pegasus does a does a beautiful job at that. I will say, there's no writer though now that can just write. So, you know, in the in in the lead up to the publication of a book, you know, six months in advance of the book coming out, and through the next six months to, to really get the word out, any writer needs to be part of the a very active part of the marketing team in getting in getting the word out.
0: Exactly, and of course that's changed over the years. It seems like for some authors to even get a publisher interested, you have to show that you have a platform and a certain number of followers who would be interested in a book that you would write.
1: So I would say that's particularly true for nonfiction. They like to know that you have a following in in fiction it helps, but um, you know, there are a lot of debut authors that that break out that are wild successes because something gets into the water and you know, and people just love the book and it gets and it sells like wildfire. So I would say that's It's a little less important in fiction. I think they they do appreciate long-term though. So now that this is my third novel, having a track record of um, the work that I do to get the word out there, the networking, the festivals that are, you know, connections of mine, relationships that I've built, et cetera, that all sort of adds up to a resume for lack of a better way to put it or a track record that I think any publisher appreciates.
0: Now, are you at the point where you write a book on contract or you have to wait until the book is finished to sell it?
1: Um, so I'm a little bit in between. So Pegasus, um, they also published Leaving Coise Hill, my last book, and in that contract, they had an option, right? First writer for refusal on the next book, which means that they get the chance to make an offer on the book before anybody else and to present them with, you know, Astor Kelly. I didn't have to, I didn't have to have the whole book written before I pitched the book to them for them to decide. In fact, they decided on, you know, a full synopsis and the first three chapters, but before I felt comfortable giving them that um, for them to decide for me, cause I, I've still considered myself new enough at the trade, um, had written the whole book. So mm. the, the, but that was purely my decision. They have an option again for my next book. And it's an interesting question, you know, might I pitch them before it's completely done or, or do I, you know, wait to see. And part of that is because I, I find for me that, um, having a first draft is for me is kind of 40% of the work. So there's so much about the story and the characters that continue to develop as I revise. Um, So, you know, will I get to the point where that's also clear to me and I can have a a very tight synopsis before I've written the whole book? I don't know. I haven't been able to do that yet. (laughs) Maybe, maybe I'll get get there.
0: So it sounds like your process, if this is what you're telling me, is that when you start writing, you may think you know where you're going, but that is not necessarily where you end up.
1: Correct. Or even if I have, you know, point A, point M, and point Z, and those remain, there's a a lot that changes in between for character development, which then sometimes drives certain Plot points, right? So it's a very it's a very iterative process.
0: So when you started writing the secret life of Astra Kelly, you had a fairly good idea of what yes. the secret was that would be revealed at
1: the yes, end. Yes, I, and I did. And that probably did not really change. That almost did not change. Yep. And you know, Astor Kelly's story came out very almost whole, Um, there is, which we haven't really talked about yet, this 1970s timeline, which focuses on her daughter, Lissy, who I knew was going to be, for obvious reasons, really important to the story and impacted um, in unexpected ways by the secrets that Astor um, was keeping. But it took me a little while to figure out exactly who she was and what her very own driving characteristics were. Um, And so I chose to make her an aspiring Broadway star because I thought it was an interesting mirror into, you know, in a lot of ways, this book is the story of two, well, many artistic journeys, actually. There are a lot of artists in this book, whether they're actors or fashion designers or singers or sculptors. And so this idea of being a young person, because... Both Astor and Lissy are quite young, um, you know, twenty, early twenties. When we meet them, in this, in the process of kind of finding your artistic voice, how do you want to show up in the world? What does that take? And so, having Lissy be an aspiring Broadway star was a very different industry than fashion design, of course, but a different artistic journey. And I also wanted to put her in a place that. Um, you know how's all those questions of fame possible fame and what does fame how does that impact a person and how they see themselves um and also i was interested by you know in both 40s hollywood which we think of as so glamorous and broadway which are these gorgeous perfectly timed productions you know there's a really there's a grittiness and a dark underbelly to both um and so get, putting them both kind of in those worlds of there's a difference between what the the audience, if you will, sees and what's really going on behind the scenes, I thought that would be interesting to, to, to have their stories mirror each other in that way. So how were you
0: able to, like, how did you know all the details of, of what it would be like to be on Broadway during that? period of time?
1: There are a few things. There are a couple of documentaries that were really, really helpful to me in the research process. There's a beautiful documentary, I mentioned it in my author's note, called The Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. And it's um, a documentary that looks back on the experience that a whole cast of very young actors had being cast into a stephen sondheim production and sondheim you know one of the lions of broadway um you know for these young people being cast in a show like that um it it was called merrily we roll along which has become a bit of a cult classic was incredibly impactful on their lives and so i didn't do that as research, I actually happened to watch that documentary and thought, oh, wow, this is a great, possible,
0: um, and initially that play was, you know, considered background. a background, I, right? I, again,
1: correct. Yeah. Yeah. Which didn't happen to see Steven Sondheim. Um, and so it was an unusual set of, set of circumstances. And so I, you know, I, I fictionalized that and, create a, uh, you know, a fictional musical and it's, they're not exactly the same, but that's where some of that came from. But the documentary has all this old footage of, of from them auditioning to rehearsing, to hanging out together as a cast. So that that was really influential. There, There are a few other documentaries. There's an interesting documentary on the creation of a chorus line, which was my favorite. Musical, so many people's favorite musical um, at that time period that, that came out in 1975. So just digging into documentaries, old photographs, um, articles from that time were, were really instrumental in helping me picture it. I, I'm a very visual writer. I have to see the whole scene in all its detail before I can begin to write it. And so so that kind of primary research is really valuable to me. Same with the 40s. I rely a lot on vintage magazines. So I was able to find, you know, Life magazines and Look magazines from the late 40s, also from the 70s. And though they're such cultural timepieces, they really are like time capsules that will drop you right back into what were people talking about? What did they care about? How did they dress? you know, what was being advertised, all of it, really helpful.
0: For the parts of the book that were set in the 1940s, were you able to talk to anyone who had lived through that to get details?
1: I didn't actually. It's interesting. A lot of authors do a lot of or try to do a lot of firsthand interviews. Um, I tend to rely more on, on the research I can get my hands on. I did read Lauren Bacall's memoir, which is lovely. So that was sort of like talking to somebody. Um, (laughs) She, she goes into great detail about what it was like to be a contract actor at that time in Hollywood. So that was, uh, that was instrumental to me in, in a lot of the details. So one kind
0: of interesting connection. um, I live in Fairfield, Iowa and we have the Stephen Sondheim Theater here, which is, of course, named after Stephen Sondheim. And I think it's the only theater that bears his name.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And my sister Barbara lived in Fairfield, Iowa for quite really? some time. Really? That's yeah, cool. Maharishi yeah, Maharishi
0: Yeah, Maharishi International University. Hoover. So, Yeager. Barbara, what's her last name? I don't yeah. think I know her, but.
1: Really right, you did. might have, you might have, yeah, she was very well, well involved there, that's so, funny. <laughs> what a small
0: world. So, Catherine, why don't you read a little bit from The Hidden Life
1: of Astor Kelly? Wonderful, I'd be happy to. I'm going to read from the very beginning, so people can get a sense of Astor and this world and where the book begins. So, again... Wonderful, so we are in 1948, Los Angeles is where we open. Chapter one. Standing outside Fernando's boutique on Wilshire Boulevard, Astor took a moment to compose herself before adjusting her glasses and opening the door. A saleswoman wearing a luxurious silken organza dress with pumps so pointy they pinched Astor's feet with the thought of them, glanced up hopefully and then with confusion when she noticed the worn suitcase Astor carried. I'm here to see Fernando Tivoli. Astor clutched her purse, the train ticket inside a niggling reminder of just how far she'd come and how little she had to show for it. I'm not sure he's available. The woman eyed Astor with suspicion. He's expecting me, Astor Kelly. The woman told her to wait and disappeared behind a long panel of green velvet. Astor tucked her suitcase out of the way and surveyed the limited yet stunning selection of gowns for women and dinner jackets for men on display. To the uninitiated, Fernando's looked like any other small boutique, but Fernando was a couturier and Astor knew well how the system worked. Anyone who lingered after taking in the jaw-dropping prices, inquired about different sizes, or asked to try something on would be whisked away to a back room, likely behind that green curtain, offered a glass of champagne, and seated around a runway. There, models would take turns walking, turning, and twirling various dresses down the runway, hoping the customer would find something to her liking and place an order. Fernando was one of the youngest designers in Beverly Hills, but was already a darling among L.A. fashion critics. He was also Astor's last chance to break into the world of design. If she didn't land an apprenticeship with him, she'd be forced to make the long trip back to New York, The first Fashion Guild contest winner not to secure a promising position in the industry. The velvet shimmered as the woman stepped back into the room. He'll see you, but he has a client coming at three o'clock. Astrid glanced at her watch, which said 2.50 p.m., certain her appointment had been scheduled for three. She'd arrived early and yet would have less than 15 minutes with him. She told herself to stay positive and calm, then followed the woman behind the green curtain. Fernando's back room was a smaller space for couturier shows than Astor was accustomed to in New York, but careful attention had been paid to every detail. Instead of musty wall-to-wall carpet, colorful area rugs suggested a living room. Similarly, the couch and two chairs arranged for customers were upholstered in fine linen, not the scratchy wool herringbone that generated static in every New York season and the runway, usually black with scuff marks, gleamed with a polish that somehow hid the well-trodden path of the models. On the far side of the room, a man squatted over photographs strewn across the floor, his back to Aster. He cut a slim figure in gabardine trousers, his Oxford sleeves rolled up, rolled up at the elbows. A pencil rested on his ear, and he disappear, and disappeared into a thick mane of jet black hair. Aster Cotelli wasn't particularly tall, but he carried himself with the strength of a dancer, his back muscles flexing as he reached for various photos, flipping them over to examine the backs before returning them to the pile. I'm sorry to be rushed, he said without turning around. I see that you were in the book, but remind me while you're here. He took the pencil from his ear and jotted something in a notebook. Astor tightened her grip on her suitcase. The Fashion Guild contest? He gave an almost inaudible grunt, a dismissive, hmm, suggesting the award didn't mean anything to him. You signed up looking for an apprentice, she added. Oh, Greta convinced me to do that. She's a doll. Warmth infused his voice, which had the lovely baritone vibration of a piano. It's always worth meeting anyone Greta sends. He stood and swiveled toward Aster with his hand outstretched, all in one grand movement. When he finally looked at her, he stopped, mid-motion. Wait, I thought, are you one of Greta's models? Aster swallowed, trying to tamp down her dismay at the question and the flush rising in her cheeks. How to explain that yes, but no, not anymore. Yes, she'd suffered through the humiliation of walking the runway, the steady ache of starvation, the constant cornering in a back room by some client's husband who wanted a closer look at what his wife wanted to buy. The smells of cigarette smoke and bourbon, the only relief from the stink of his sweat, desperate for one of the seamstresses on hand to come swat him away. Only Greta could be counted on for brisk interruption. Greta had saved her in so many ways, first allowing her to take home abandoned samples because she couldn't afford any decent clothes of her own, then helping Astor when she wanted to disassemble them and rearrange the parts into new garments that would communicate more power, less sex appeal. It was Greta who'd spliced together the new creations for her and Greta who'd convinced Astor to enter her best pieces into the design contest to show the world what she could do. I used to work with her, Aster said. I'm here to show you my designs. He studied her for a moment, looked at his watch and said, well, you've come all the way out here. Let's see what you've got. Aster hitched in her breath as a rush of adrenaline surged. She clicked open her suitcase and felt her way through the silken cashmere to the garment on the bottom. She'd intended to show to him last. It was nothing like his designs, but it was her favorite and she didn't have much time. She pulled out the black tunic with sable fur sleeves cropped to three-quarter length. He reached out to touch it. The cut of these sleeves looks almost like Dior, he said. They were, once, he laughed. Really? And the tunic? Off the rack, but I added the edging at the neckline from the piping of a Turkish pillow. Interesting. I hate to ask, but do you mind putting it on for me so I can see its hang? I gave all the girls the afternoon off, and I'd like to see your work in motion. Astor's heart ricocheted. He showed her into the dressing room, a familiar place with a rack of heels in different sizes, hooks with backless bras, strapless bras, girdles and slips, and a robe for cover between changes. Aster took off her prim silk blouse and pulled the tunic over her head. She wished she was wearing something other than a brown pencil skirt. It didn't exactly work with the tunic, but she'd been determined to dress as demurely as possible for her interviews. She appraised herself in the narrow mirror and decided she needed a little more flair to show off the piece she released the twist of her bun letting soft ringlets fall to her shoulders and took off the thick rimmed glasses perched on her nose they were purely for effect and weren't right for the outfit finally she switched her flats for a pair of black patent leather heels when she came out of the dressing room she found fernando sitting on the couch sketching in his notebook she took it as a cue to step up on the runway and give her creation proper viewing before she thought better of it old habits kicked in And she strutted away from him, turned slowly, and walked back on a tightrope, each step exactly in line with the one before. So you are one of Greta's girls, he said, smiling.
0: (laughs) Thank you. And that was Catherine A. Sherbrooke reading from The Hidden Life of Astor Kelly. And I'll tell you, it only gets better from there. You know, this is a book I, I had to read the whole way through to the end to find out. You know, even though we know more than Lissy knows during the story, we kind of know the truth. But to find out how it comes out and and what all the repercussions are is something I really wanted to know. It's, you know, kind of a page-turner. But I'm wondering, like, why you chose to tell the story the way you did? Because you kind of, you tell the whole 1940s story, and then you tell the whole 70s story, So it's basically in chronological order. So we do know the secrets from the past, but you could have done it a different way where you had flashbacks throughout and Mm. we kind of learn the truth at the same time Lissy does. Why did you choose to do it this way?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. So to me, um, the truth that Lissy finds out to me is less um my intention was not to have the reader be shocked by that per se right it's it is the following of astor's story and the decisions that she makes what i was really fascinated by and i think about this a lot are when two people even when they're very close they have different understandings of the same situation so in in and, and so this applies to Aster also. Obviously, there are things that Lissy doesn't know about her mother's past, but Aster doesn't fully understand the impact of the stories that she has told Lissy, what impact they have on Lissy. And I was really interested by that. You know, we all make assumptions. We can have a conversation or, or a long relationship, and I walk away thinking one thing about the world, and and, and you're assuming that I'm thinking something else. And so I, I really wanted to explore that, um, and have the reader sort of privy to Astor's world while while watching Lissy walk through hers, and then ultimately, obviously, um, there are some things that the that the reader doesn't know. That is true. That is true. That none of the characters know, and um, that that prove you know prove to be in some ways the 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 ultimate twist and coming together of of all of it so i'm delighted to hear that you wanted to keep reading even though you thought exactly. you knew exactly <laughs> um and, and you know there are a lot of books like that when you think about it you know it starts out with a dead body on the floor so so like you know that this character has died or you know the famous one of uh of you know Gabriel garcia marquez when the character is, starts out uh, he's on a firing in front of a firing squad about to be shot right so you know that that's coming, but you're dying to find out how it happened and how they got there. So I like stories like that.
0: You know, my mother and I like to watch the um, BBC Murder Mysteries, like Midsummer Murder Mysteries. And you always know that there's not only going to be just one murder, but <laughs> three during the episode. So you always you yeah. always know that that's coming. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and and right. yet it's still fun to watch. But, you know, I got to say, I don't know the how there's any people left in those small towns in England because they sure do get yeah, right. knocked off so awfully true. frequently.
1: <laughs> makes you think twice about living there. Yeah, that's for sure. The other thing I will say for anyone listening who is sitting there thinking like, well, it's obvious what Aster's secrets are. I, I think she makes some pretty unconventional choices that, and and, um, has very important relationships that I think are unusual and unique in the <clears throat> in the fiction world and may not be um, what what people expect. And I really wanted to explore what those relationships were like and what those friendships were like and have that be a really par- rich part of the story, not just kind of a flashback that reveals a plot point. But those relationships are really fundamental to who Astor Kelly um, is and becomes as a person. So...
0: Now, you also delve into, I mean, we talked about the discrimination against LGBTQ homosexuals, yeah, homosexuals yeah. in Hollywood in the 40s. But you also talk about discrimination against women in the 40s in almost every area, not just Hollywood. So that would be...
1: Part of the reason,
0: or maybe the main reason, that Astra Kelly could have ended up as the first winner of that prize not to get an internship somewhere. And really, the only reason that she won the prize is because Mm -hmm. the judges did not know that she was female when they were looking at her work. That's right. So, were there women succeeding in fashion design in that age? What made them able to succeed?
1: Right. So it was very unusual, like pretty much any industry, a very male dominated industry. There there were some, right? So Coco Chanel um, begins to, to uh, come up at this time, but it was highly unusual. So it's a very bold choice for Astor to think that she might be able to get into fashion design because there were so few careers available. And I think it's it's something that runs through all my fiction is this idea of, you know, strong women who are swimming upstream, but but not willing to give up on finding their their place in the world. And you're also
0: addressing the issue of discrimination against actors of color.
1: For sure. Yes. Yes. Which is part of the 1970s timeline. Um It was, you know, very well known that in in Broadway, Broadway was mostly for white actors and actresses. And there were occasionally some shows that had actors of color. But as an example, so there's specifically Lissy's roommate in the book is a Korean American and any Asian actors at the time, they were actually all called Orientals. You know, they were all gathered together in one big lump and almost always only had, you know, bit parts. And so it's an important part of Lissy's story that her roommate, who is arguably more accomplished than Lissy on the stage, more frequently gets to the final round of callbacks, but, you know, almost never gets the part, um is likely because she's Asian and they just don't have parts for someone like that. And it's something that um Lissy doesn't quite understand. You know, I think when you're an artist, we all like to think that if we're the ones that get the part or we're the ones that get the book published, right? It's it's for good merit and for good reason. Um and it's and Lissy doesn't fully understand that in fact, you know, she is she has white privilege on her side in that way and that Bay, her roommate Bay is um, is is often not making the final cut, really, probably only because of her race.
0: Speaking of strong women swimming upstream, you did mention earlier that Leaving Coy's Hill is about is based on the life of a real woman in history that we know very little about. Can you just kind of give us the sixty second version of the life of Lucy Stone?
1: Yes, I'd, I'd love to. So Lucy Stone, born in 1818, was the first woman in our country to speak out for women's rights. And when I say speak out, literally speaking in public was considered scandalous for a woman to do at this time. And she was the first to talk about uh, regularly women's rights. She inspired Susan B. Anthony to join the movement, and they became very close colleagues um, who who ran the movement. But because of a major falling out that they have um, in the course of their relationship, Lucy Stone gets pretty purposefully written out of history. So this book is sticks very closely to her life, but it is fiction. I write it in first person um, to imagine what it is like to be that woman out in front um, leading the charge in really difficult times in the mid-1800s. Wow.
0: I I never knew. I wonder how many other women there are. I mean, there must be countless women in history that we've forgotten that you could write a book
1: about. Countless, endless, endless. I mean, we tend to, I think we we over, for some for practical reasons, but in general, we oversimplify history and put, you know, accomplishments at the feet of very few people and 99% of them men in our in our culture. And so there are countless women who've done extraordinary things since the beginning of time. And since men were mostly the ones telling the stories, most of those stories have gotten lost, sadly. I guess that's why they call it history.
0: Exactly. Instead of her story. Exactly. So Catherine, will you continue to write historical fiction? Is that where you plan to keep
1: your focus? Uh, We'll see. I love historical fiction, obviously. I read a lot of historical fiction. But I'm not really sure where the muse comes from. But I tend to uh, um, just write whatever is striking me in the moment. So... uh, and it's also hard to say what's called historical fiction these days. Like is the 1980s historical fiction or yeah, not? Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, Realizing you know,
0: most of my life is historical now.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um so we'll see. I'm always game game to discover another fabulous true story that I can I can, you know, write about like Lucy Stone, but it's also really fun to have, you know, no guardrails and write pure pure fiction so i i suspect i'll continue to do both so you have a book you're working on now i do i'm in i call it the percolation phase so i'm i'm in deep thought about the story and the characters and how it all comes comes together so stay tuned on that So, Catherine,
0: do you have any books in the drawer, you know, manuscripts that you started on and didn't finish or thought you might go back to later? Um, I
1: don't. I thought Leaving Coy's Hill might be one of those, believe it or not. So even and just for aspiring writers out there, again, back to, you know, how much rejection there is in this business. My agent took almost needed almost a year and a half to sell that book. And I had decided that it wasn't going to sell. that I was going to have to put it in the drawer and maybe sell it one day, but that wasn't going to be the book. And fortunately I was, while I was waiting, I was writing this next book. So they look like it looks a little faster than it is in terms of, um, the, the quick timing between the publication of both. Um, and then lo and behold, Pegasus discovered it and, you know, has gone on to win this very prestigious award in Massachusetts. And so, you know, you, you never know. So so far, nothing in the drawer. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Congratulations. And we're out of time, but we do always close with the quote. I don't know who said this first, but it does seem to fit this story. Uh, Sometimes okay. little secrets grow up to be big lies.
1: That's a great quote.
0: I love it. Thank you so much Excellent. for being with us today, Katherine.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a really and fun
0: conversation. see you all next week on Writer's Voices.